Oh boy. Uh, uh, let, me, let, uh, yeah. me, let me tell you, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> in the week celebrating Thanksgiving, nothing really brings a family closer together than a, a movie like Jennifer Kent's uh, The Nightingale. Truly a time th- this holiday season uh, as we gather around Yon Bird uh, recording this on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, truly a time to remember that all land is stolen land. Nobody owns anything. So I watched this movie um, during my Thanksgiving holiday, traveling with my in-laws, uh-huh. and uh, with headphones on, sequestered from the rest of everybody else. And the whole time, they're just hearing me going, oh, n- n- no. And, That's and, fair. And then that was, that was most of um, my family's reactions to this. I had to do uh, family pictures with my in-laws, so I'm very glad nice. I did not sequester myself and watch this film, because I don't <laughs> think I would have been Made in the it. mood <laughs> for yeah. smiling. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to watch this till I got home from my travels. Uh, that was my plan initially, Dustin. How'd that work out for you, trying to watch this in between uh, carving birds and you know saying grace or whatever you guys were doing? It was awful, and <laughs> I... <laughs> yeah, I bet. I don't like you anymore. I didn't pick it. You're all welcome. Oh, Arthur... You yeah, picked... I picked the kid who would be king. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I, yeah. I, I had a mixed up because Arthur something and with King substance. Arthur, and I like... That's true, you my, did. <laughs> my brain transposed the picks. Hey, we both did movies it, about the British Empire. It's basically my general animosity towards you, I think, that came out. Oh, and, yeah, and that's I, true. And I assumed you had to have done this to me. Well, you know, I've tried to cultivate a look that gathers general animosity towards me, uh, and I feel like it's going pretty well. Uh, it, it does pair well with the kid who would be king, as du- Dustin did dive deep into the... Uh, national history of britain and england and i think this shed some more light on those those issues he was talking about being so nationalistic present in their country look in their history i know i'm just saying i hate dalton and welcome to the last episode of the good trash honor cast we almost made it uh you know we thought we thought we got through compliance we can get through anything we were just two episodes from retirement we were so wrong no, uh, totally entirely. Hey, welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We talk about the films you will never, if you have any scruples about you at all, discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is uh, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Um, thanks, Arthur. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, sorry. I I feel like I had to pick it. No, I no. think you made it right. Look, he's Dustin's doing a whole shtick right now. But that, it's going to make my top five, top yeah, ten. Yeah, this is a good yeah, movie. It's a great movie. Thank you for giving us an excuse to watch a film we probably would not have caught up with otherwise. Also, I hate you and all that you stand for. That's valid. Uh, I accept that. Counterpoint. I did apologize profusely several times in advance. You did. And also, counterpoint, Dustin, sight unseen, made us watch uh, Dario Argento's, oh God, Mother of Sighs. Was that the last uh, Mother one? Of Tears, Mother of Tears. Mother of Tears. of the one. So. Yeah. Oh, Dalton look. was the mother of size after watching that movie. Yeah, I made us watch Mother Running Scared. Mother of size would actually be the first one. That's right, you're right. But the point is, we've all committed great sins against each other in programming this show. Yeah, you made me watch this stupid one a long time ago. Running Scared, yeah. No, not that uh, one. Okay. What was oh, that yeah, one? there was that, though. There yes. was that one. It was the one that was really Hitchcock, uh, Lovecraftian. Um, oh. Paul Giamatti had like five minutes in it. Oh, John dies at the end. Yeah, yeah you hated one. that one. Yeah, that and then Dalton made us watch Hostiles. That movie's still good. Hostiles oh. is dog meat. Hey, I I'll actually kind of picked this to pair Nightingale with Hostiles. Nightingale is the better version of Hostiles. Yes. That's that's kind of what I was thinking. I will give you that. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should introduce ourselves. We haven't gotten there yet. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. Uh, we are still here in our 2019 roundup, as you've uh, intimated probably from all the accusations. We've been picking blind spots from 2019 to help each other get caught up uh, at end of year time. And Arthur has selected the Nightingale. Um, rightfully so. We've talked. This was the year of the cowboy. 
we spent an entire two months earlier this year talking all about the westerns. all the years not the year of the cowboy? I think 2019, look, between uh, Hometown Road, Red Dead Redemption 2, <laughs> uh, I, I don't need, my bona fides as having called 2019 as the year of the cowboy are not in question. Trademark. Thank you. So, um, side note. Yes. Are you ready for a side note? Uh, sure. There's going to be a lot of side notes this episode, I, I, I think. I need to hang out with you while you play Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh-huh. I'll play because, again. Because um, I had some feedback on my dissertation. Oh. And I've been stuck at about 100 pages for a long time right okay. now. Uh, working on the Kung Fu movie copying thing that I've been doing with Bruce Lee and the Bruce Lee clones and et cetera. Yeah, harm. And I got some really, really good advice. And and my one of my instructors said, hey, why don't you do it as a case study of a set of copies? Mm, Which okay. immediately my brain said, oh, so like, you know, Dracula? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the Borgo yeah. cast and, yeah, yeah. you know, my Dracula love is is, is strong. Mm-hmm. But the second thing that almost immediately came to my mind was the Italian Spaghetti Western mm. as another sort of version of this copying process that happens in genre film. And so, anyway, side note ended at this point, but I need to watch you play this video game because this is the 21st century version. Because we don't make westerns like that. Yeah, we don't. And the Quick and the Dead was like the last sort of like love fest towards that. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's the the film equivalent of this would be if somebody had given uh, Sergio Leone the the budget of I don't like Gone with the Wind to make Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, that's what Red Dead Redemption Two is going for. It succeeds sometimes and not so much other times. We'll have that conversation. I'm all about that. Uh, so I guess uh, now that introductions are out of the way, Dustin, why don't you tell the nice people what order things are going to go down in? Oh, you're watching or listening to a podcast, aren't you, dear listener? They are, yeah. We're not just chit-chatting right now. And in a podcast, um, sometimes podcasts have orders. They do. This podcast is an example of one of those with an order. Uh-huh. I'm drawing this out. Yeah, I can tell. Do you need some help? <laughs> no, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're just doing a little soft shoe, because so the I'm, dogs could be let in. I see. I, I'm mostly just messing with you. I looks like it. So we're going to begin, uh-huh. like podcasts do. Yeah, because they have to have a beginning, a middle. Oh and my end. god, I'm going <laughs> to throttle you. Uh, and we're gonna... you don't have to try to make him curse this week. I put the yeah. swear jar away. Yeah, no, I, the swears are out this week. Yeah, I, I, my my trying to be a good chivalric boy. Uh, for the kid who would be king, are all out the window after I saw how British military officers acted in this movie. Yep, Dal- Dalton is shipping back out to sea. You fuck him. He's got his sailor mouth back. Yep, I got my. I, I wouldn't found my my Irish roots again. I, I know how to be a, a good trash boy. Sailor mouth, you say. Moving right along. Um, uh-huh. I'm gonna say this. Yeah. Um, because this preamble is all about spoilers and about avoiding them. And I want to begin by simply saying, content warning. Content warning. Yeah, huh. Content warning, dear friends. So glad massive, somebody remembered to do that. Massive violence and rape are going to be uh, part of the discussion uh, of this film. Not just massive, like uh, colonial violence, racial violence specifically. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's all the content warnings you wish all Westerns uh, adjacent films gave. It's very unpleasant. Uh-huh. So what we're going to do, though, is we're going to do um, we're going to synopsize the film. Um, Arthur's going to do that, and I'm uh, generally going to assume because of the 2019 release that has um, some traction in the press, we're going to generally avoid spoilers there. Then we're going to move into a thumbs up, thumbs down review, and and just in how effective or effect- affecting with an A uh, the film happens to be. And then we're going to move into expanding the syllabus in, in the ways in which one might approach using this film in an uh, academic, teaching, institutional way. And then we're going to get down to business. And once we get down to business, though, guys, um, there might be lighter spoilers in the uh, 
expanding the syllabus section, but they're going to be pretty heavy spoilers when we get down to business. Yeah, we just we're going to have to talk about the things that happen. And so uh, we want to warn you about that. And so yes, indeed. The warning today is not just simply uh, in, in terms of spoilers. It is in terms of content. And so, dear listener, uh, we're watching out for you. I understand all the trauma that goes along with this particular kind of conversation. And uh, if you want to tune out and check out some things first, take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't got to listen to this episode. That, that, that's what I want to say, although it's a very good movie, and I think we're going to have a great discussion about that. So without any further ado, Dr. Arthur Gordon. Can we hear that synopsis, please? Jennifer Kent's follow-up to the well-regarded cult horror hit The Babadook is a change of pace. Set in 1825 in what is modern-day Tasmania, the Nightingale tells the tale of an Irish convict, Claire, held captive in the British-occupied state. Claire should be free, but the camp lieutenant, Hawkins, prefers to keep her captive, raping and assaulting her on a regular basis. After a drunken confrontation between her husband and Hawkins, Claire and her husband decide to pack up their baby and leave. Hawkins snaps and kills Claire's husband and baby, rapes her, and leaves her for dead. The next day, Claire comes to and vows revenge on Hawkins and the men who killed her family. She hires a young Aborigine native, Billy, to track them. Over the course of a few days, Claire and Billy come to an understanding with a shared hatred of the English. But can they survive the brutal bush and get their revenge? Kent's harrowing revenge thrill is a painful watch dealing in colonialism, imperialism, and racism. Yep. That's a good one, Arthur. Thanks. Hey, Ooh. hey, Dalton. Yeah, huh? How much you like this movie? Uh, may the sun always set on the British Empire. May it set quickly, permanently, permanently, uh, and aggressively. Uh, empires are bad, and I, I will never say otherwise. I, I can't, in good conscience, I don't think. Uh, this is a film. Uh, Doctor Mrs. My Wife tried to watch this film with me and decided to punch out, but uh, she had a question. Uh, for me when we punched out uh, and it was during the, the scene Arthur talked about uh, where Claire's family is, is murdered uh, Hawkins is uh, allowed to act with impunity by the men under his command who both seem pretty horrified by his actions and uh, Dr. And Mrs. My Wife said uh, why isn't anybody killing this man why are these guys still working for him and uh, the only answer I could think of is because they're wearing the same uniform and that's the thing I'll because thought. it's the one thing you desire most, Clarice. Advancement, of course. Yeah, I thought about that a lot uh, watching this movie because uniforms and advancement and uh, keeping up with appearances are things that reoccur throughout this film. Whether it's and it's not a thing that's gone away in the military. No, uh, look, you, I, I haven't served, so I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, but you're not wrong. People are, you know, having to resign as. Uh, their positions in the Navy right now for, for things that have happened. Uh, this isn't a news podcast. You didn't come here for that. We've got enough troubling content to get through this week. My point is, uh, this comes up a lot. We've got the small child uh, who ends up under the charge of Lieutenant Hawkins. Uh, I can't remember that little kid's name. Uh, I was going to say uh, Charlie, but Eddie? Charlie's... Oh, Eddie is, is exactly Eddie? what it is, Eddie. Eddie is the kid's name. Uh, Eddie uh, is, is taught to be a good little British soldier. Uh, and he's going to learn how to write his name because he, too, is uh, illiterate and orphaned by the colonization of Tasmania. Presumably his parents were convicts or, uh, you know, some other such business, but they're long gone. And uh, the first thing that Eddie does is uh, take a dump on the workers underneath him when he has a chance to. Uh, and that's what keeps happening, right? Uh, Charlie, uh, 
uh, Billy's uncle, uh, who we get a couple of scenes with throughout the film, uh, spends most of his time on screen keeping up with appearances, just trying to get by until he can get one over on, on these these folks. And that's something that came up a lot throughout the film. Uh, it's a hard watch. Look, I literally just got done watching this movie uh, because of holiday travel, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, our, our recording was compressed this week, so I'm I'm still uh, a wash in this movie, and I probably will be in a wash with this movie for probably the next six months. It is a lot of film. It's a lot to think about. I think it is effectively done. Uh, the aspect ratio of this film is claustrophobic, and Jennifer Kent uses that aspect ratio to great effect. Uh, her close-ups fill the screen uh, in a way that is truly haunting and you know we can throw or haunting is a word uh, an adjective that gets thrown around talk to talk about movies a lot got used to talk around uh, the babadook a lot yeah th that's the only word i can think of to talk about this movie uh because it does at times start to feel like a ghost story in some ways uh, in ways that are really interesting and i think we'll we'll get more in, out of when we get into analysis and we're not dancing around spoilers uh but the, the ways in which reality becomes thin in this film uh really have stuck with me uh claire's journey involves a great deal of uh starvation uh and sleep deprivation uh, and those effects start to creep into the film and in ways i thought were really powerful uh and the ways in which her trauma grief and guilt uh all also start bleeding into the film are, are really powerful because we are kept in pov through so much of this film whether it's claire's uh, primarily through Claire's, but we get a couple of other POV shots. But it is primarily through Claire's uh, that we see this this world in this film, so it makes sense that her, her psyche is bleeding into the film, and it, I really is one of my favorite touches, and I guess that's a good place to, to end this so we don't get too far uh, afield. Uh, again, I'm still processing, so we don't want to ramble too much, but that's, I, I think, the flourish that makes this film really worth the pain of watching it because uh, this is a hard watch uh, we're going to keep reiterating that a lot i think uh it's not a movie i i can in good conscience as dustin has said uh recommend anybody watch uh unless this is a, a specific area of interest for you um but that choice to let claire's emotional state really drive the film is powerful uh because it it keeps us in her seat uh, even when she does things that we don't agree with even when she does things that she doesn't agree with uh it allows us to stay with her uh, and stay in her experience and, and to, to live in this world as best the film can allow us to uh and uh, you know if ebert was right if uh the cinema is an emotion machine meant to teach us about each other uh Damn, that's what a movie about uh, our shared colonial history across the world should do, right? Is remind us what it was like to be there when the bones that are the foundations of the modern world were laid. Uh, yeah, that's it's a movie. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Hey, Arthur, so you did this. I did did this. Are you glad you did this? Yes, Uh this is a movie I was very much looking forward to. Never got a release here in Oklahoma. Uh, and, and it's kind of surprising in a time where we've gotten quite a bit smaller. I mean, Parasite was for one. The Arthur Farewell, we had in yeah. a lot of theaters here. Yeah, and, and so uh, I was really expecting this one to come here, and it didn't. And then it was kind of silently dropped onto Hulu. And I was like, oh, finally I'll get a chance. And I was like, there's so much to catch up with. I knew about the content. I was like, it's going to be hard to watch this. I'll, you know, choose to watch this just for fun. Yeah. Quote, unquote. 
Um, and this was a prime opportunity, I think, to force my hand on it. Um, I'm glad I did. I, I think this is an exquisitely put together piece of film. Um, I think that, uh, to Dalton's point, the, the choice of the Academy ratio, that, that 69 aspect ratio to really, uh, emphasize that caged, uh, element that all of these characters are living in, um, is, is a vital choice. I, I, I love the natural lighting, uh, that they opt to use, uh, through many of the scenes. And one of the things I really appreciate it, um, that carries over, I think from a guy like Robert, Robert, Robert Eggers, um, is that, that choice to go heavily authentic mm. uh from costuming to set design to language i mean we've yeah. got the irish speaking in gaelic we've got the aborigine people speaking in their aboriginal languages and yeah dialects. a tasmanian language that's never appeared on film according to imdb trivia did you see that uh-uh, that's yeah, really cool apparently uh it's a nearly extinct language and it's never appeared in a, a major motion picture before. wow that's yeah. awesome yeah um i i really appreciate and respect those those choices um that uh cinematography like you mentioned the the, the close-ups uh from uh radic ladsuk um who kent worked with on the babadook she brings oh, back her team here okay um and the way he's shooting those tight close-ups uh i was reminded a lot of joan of arc i was reminded a lot of jonathan Demme uh doing his stuff uh because there's something very powerful uh and, and i think about this a lot with joan of arc there's something very powerful about just the raw human face in the midst of tragedy uh, yeah. and i think that Kent and her team capitalize on that very well here. Uh, the other thing that I think is brilliant in the editing of those moments with the extreme close-ups uh, from Simon Nju, I don't know how to pronounce uh, their last name, uh, who's editing this film, also worked with Ken on Babadook. Um, there are these moments where sh- one of the characters, either Billy or Claire, they're just walking through a forest, and we know tragedy can strike at any moment. Trauma can strike at any moment. Uh, and she utilizes those extreme close-ups in a way that heightens the tension that I've never, I, I am sometimes I'll be on edge watching a movie in a theater, mm-hmm. but usually at a home I'm a lot more relaxed. And so I don't tend to be anxious. And, and this entire movie, I was very anxious because of the film language to use that extreme close Uh We are so indoctrinated to see that when uh, the extreme close up happens, maybe somebody gets stabbed in the back or they get shot. And so in my mind, every time she cussed that extreme close up, I was just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And I think that was a brilliant way to heighten that tension uh, through the narrative. It almost allows the the sense, uh, you know, Australian films are famous for uh, apocalypse depictions. And, yeah, it kind of allows the the apocalypse movie trope of danger around every corner to realistically live in this historical yeah. space where it should live, right? Yeah. And, and I think that realism here is what is another, you know, factor we, that realistic violence, the realistic shoot of the of the film itself. Um, really adds another level to it uh, because it makes it so much more real, I mean, obviously. but um, And it makes it much more effective. I also want to shout out that cast. Uh, Claire played by Aileen Franciosi uh, and Billy played by uh, Bacali Ganambar. I hope I'm pronouncing Ganambar, that right. Ganambar, I think. Ganambar. Right. Yeah. Um, they do a great job as the co-leading this film as oh, Billy and so Claire. I-, I love Billy so much. Um, I've got some, I'll come back around to this, but when we did Parasite, when we talked about Parasite off air, mm-hmm. after seeing the movie, you know, you mentioned that like novelistic approach. Yeah. And there's something to that with Billy's character. There's something so lived in about him by the end of this film, by the end of his arc and where he ends up. And man, I, I, I don't know a character this year that I might love more than Billy. I, I think it's a dynamite performance uh, from beginning to end. Uh, and he does a great job living in that character and bringing that to the screen. And then Sam Claflin as, as the villain. 
Oh, um, boy. In a role that could be very mustache twirly yeah. and could lend itself to that type of archetype villain. Never goes there. No. I, I think he manages that role well. And this is a guy that's kind of known for, he did the Hunger Games. He's done a few rom-coms or romance movies. Uh, he's and played this a fascist is... in the most recent season of Peaky Blinders. Yeah. He's, yeah. He right now is pivoting towards the heel phase of his career for sure. And he, he lands that plane here. He, yeah, he, does, he does a great job uh, as the big bad in this movie. Um, and, and so much of that interplay between him, his officers and him and Claire and Billy uh, is just dynamite. I, I really appreciate all of that. Uh, I, I love almost everything this movie is doing. I, I, I found myself questioning if maybe it lost some of its momentum at times because there's a moment where I thought it was wrapping up and then it had like another 45 minutes. Um, and I don't know if that was just my expectation, just familiar with these types of films and the beats. If I was just, Oh, this is that moment where this culminates. Uh, but it doesn't. She subverts that. Uh, and so that's another element of that novelistic approach, I think, where this isn't exactly what you're expecting it to be. It, it has a much more deeper uh, valley to go through. Um, all that being said, though, this is probably one of the hardest movies I've ever watched. Um, it, it's tough. It's up there. It's a tough one. Um, and so, you know, I could I could probably watch Compliance again. It was icky and, and disturbing. But oh, I easily. could probably watch it again. This is one I don't know if I could. Um, just it's hard, and so yeah. I, I I think it's great. I think it's exquisitely done. Uh, it's it maybe one and done though. It, it's a hard one. It's it feels like every time we uh, we we watch a film, uh, it's a one timer or a one and done. We're like, no, this is the new bar. But this really is the new bar. Yeah, I, can't... I mean, Martyrs is another one I think of. But Martyrs, yeah. I, I got, and I think Martyrs, and even Henry. I would love to watch Martyrs again. Those I would are watch same. Henry again. Yeah, I couldn't imagine when we watch Nightingale. Those are again. two that are very yeah. tough, but I, I could easily watch them yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, because you don't have to live with what you're watching nearly as much as you do in this film. I, I think. mean, this feels. There's that moment in Henry where they they film the assault. Yeah, this feels pretty much like that for two and a half hours well, or two fifteen. Yeah, I I thought about our conversation on that episode actually, Arthur. I remember I mentioned you know uh, the camera making it worse, and I think it was you that uh, on that episode said, "No, I think it would have been worse if we were in the room." And yeah, it would have been. You're right. I was wrong. Yeah, it's, it, it's, oh boy. it's hard. Uh, and it's a lot of that film technique she's using, that film language she's using, that that static camera and those those close ups, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's it's hard. So that's that's where I am. I am sorry. I do apologize, but I think we're all better for it. I Hopefully. will never forgive you. Um, however, and you'll also never stop thanking him. I assume Jennifer Kent's um, The Nightingale is a very very well made film. It's a great movie. Uh -huh. I mean, and, and, and that, for all the reasons you've already said. Uh, the way it uses its film language, the the performances of the actors is incredible. All of their passion, all of their hate, all of their hatefulness is is absolutely palpably believable. And uh, so, I mean, there's nothing about the movie that doesn't work. It's it really comes down to questions of taste and of content. Mm, Do yeah. I like this kind of? No, I don't. I don't like this kind of movie at all. I don't want to set through this kind of movie. And, uh, you know, think about those kinds of depictions. But that does not mean it's not very, very well made. It's not very excellent. And it's not asking questions that need to be asked. And the way in which it negotiates a white woman's liberation mm -hmm. next to a racial minority man's liberation yeah. is fascinating. And I don't want to say a whole lot more about, we'll the, get into that, about sure. that than that, but the way in which those particular conversations are put side by side in this film, I think are really, really brilliant. And so it's a great turn on the Australian Western. And uh, so there's nothing bad I can say about it, except for I don't like that. I don't want to see that. I have a little girl. 
and that bothers me. Um, and, and you know, the the rape scenes they bother me. But that being said, I, that's kind of what the movie wants you to do. It wants you to be bothered, absolutely. So I mean, so I'm going to be kind of like concise in my terminology right now. But yes, it is super good. It is one of the best made films I've seen in a long time, especially considering the content, because it absolutely refrains from being salacious yeah. with it. And it's not exploitative, uh, as another film in the hands of a different filmmaker might be. And so the way in which it negotiates its issues is both as awful and horrible as it ought to be without it being a thing that turns on, you know, incel creep pants. I don't know what I'm Well, I, I get what you're saying, though, right? Because the, the missus and I watched uh, Game of Thrones together uh, throughout its, its run. I mean, well, yeah. from the time we got together to the end of its run. And, you know, we were talking about that in comparison to The Nightingale, right? And uh, I, I, we were talking about, like, yeah, if, if anything in Game of Thrones had looked, uh, had been emotionally honest and viscerally nasty as this, nobody'd watch the damn show. No. Correct. Because if you show things the way that they are, it turns out that there's no. Not a whole lot of entertainment to be found there. Right. And it's not fully a realist kind of thing because, again, the camera chooses to look away. Yeah, at times. In ways that I'm glad of. Sure. But that being said, uh, its choice to look away does not ever sort of shy away from the emotional content of the moment. Yeah. And so the way in which it achieves that sort of dynamism is, is pretty impressive. I mean, really, really, truly is. And so I don't want to say anything bad about the movie but i'm i'm with you guys i'm like this is not a movie i'm gonna watch again you know i maybe eventually but i'm certainly you have to build it, yourself up to it i'm certainly not itching to do it right now yeah, yeah but, I, but, I i don't see myself revisiting it getting excited for the next jennifer kent release i'll revisit the babadook for sure but yeah i, I can't see myself going oh you know what I really need to rewatch the nightingale before i <laughs> i go into the next jennifer kent film or you've got your filmy home buddies right and you're like hey guys we need to watch a movie Let's sit down. No, we're not. No, we're not. We'll watch The Babadook, but we're not. Yeah. This isn't your next group watch? No. It's absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Um, those are our initial thoughts on uh, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Moving right along, though, let's talk about teaching this in a film studies class or some other history class or some other philosophy class or some other you know political theory class. And what you might do to approach this, I go to you first. Arthur, you pick the film, so you make the syllabus first. Set us up. How are you teaching this movie? There were a lot of directions I was trying to figure out. I mean, some, this is usually the hardest thing for me to do is come up with the film syllabus. I often forget. Uh, I've been trying more recently to be more aware in the moment to be like, oh, this is something I can pick up with. And, and the thing that really came away with this is that violence here uh, on display, um, that very real violence, uh, especially uh, there's a moment with her and one of the ensign uh, in the woods, uh, which Ooh. is just <clears throat> brutal. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I came away from this at. And so I think uh, I would have a, I mean, you could probably do a full course over film violence, um, but I think I would do a section about film violence. I would have a text, um, film violence, history, ideology, and genre from James Kendrick, um, which is just really, I mean, it, that's what it is. It's the history of film violence. It's kind of charting oh. that rise. I mean, it goes back to uh, ideas about film and violence from the 1890s, you know, talking about you know war crimes and talking about all that they could show, mm. you know, with the new film i mean with the medium um and how it's one of the things most inherent to, to film is the violence of it uh please don't slip that into your pocket um but yeah, he's uh, thinking about running away with that book i see him yeah and this is something i was really interested in college i, I remember when we talked about peck and paw and, and we talked about straw dogs and um it was something then i had another book i was thinking about which is called savage cinema which is all about sam peck and paw and violence 
Um, but I think this is a good place to chart that. We might do some old westerns or old gangster films that kind of talk about the sleepy time bullets and talk about that mm. ideology there and what that kind of can reflect and, and the dangers of writing that. You know, well, if you shoot somebody, they're just going to fall asleep. It's a lot more nuanced and deeper than that. Uh, and so we might do some of that just to kind of have a basis of old history, you know, old film and what they did with violence. Uh, and then from there, I'm probably going to move into the rise of the ultraviolence. I'm going to talk about Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde. I, I think that's really where the shift becomes. Sure. Uh, we talk about montage editing. We talk about um, how that enhanced uh, the death and, and, and the attack on screen um, and, and where that leads us. And I think from there, you kind of track that into uh, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Quentin Tarantino, who is heavily influenced by that ultraviolence style. I mean, I would pick Reservoir Dogs. You could, you could literally pick any of his movies uh, mm-hmm. and, and go that route. Um, the last the last act of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you want to keep it current. Uh, yeah, awesome. Really really uh, dives into that. Another film featuring uh, Damon Harriman, uh, who uh, Dustin just uh, got acquainted with uh, watching uh, Mindhunter Season 2. Oh, we yeah. talked about that last week. We couldn't remember his name on the last episode. Good old episode. Chuck Manson. Yeah. Uh, Dam- Damon Singer, Harriman. Singer-songwriter. Cult leader. He, he's just got a face. Uh, yeah. he, he plays the sergeant in this film, and he's just got a face that makes him prime for bad guys. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I didn't connect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's the guy that plays. Yeah, same guy. Charlie Manson in uh, uh. Once Upon a Time and wow. Mindhunter. Okay. Yeah. It's a small world. Chuck- You're welcome, Chucky Mans. Yeah. Chucky Mans, as I like to refer to him. <laughs> um, uh, but from there, I, I want to talk about that because even though it is ultra violent, it's much bloodier, much gorier. It's still not quite real. It's almost like an absurdist. It's uh, cool. Yeah, caricature of violence. Uh, and, and then I would kind of culminate that element of it with Evil Dead 2013, uh, which just ends in an absolute bloodbath and is incredibly hard to watch. Yeah. I saw it in theaters, and I figured I would never watch it again, even though I really did like it. Same. Uh, I thought the same thing, Arthur. I've now seen that film three times somehow. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I that, have avoided it. So that That's a film as far as like ultraviolence and hard to watch. Yeah, that's, they, that's they one. They marry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, I want to jump back, and I want to go to uh, Guillermo del Toro. I want to go Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. Uh, I always, I always think about that bottle. The bottle. Uh, which is one of the most brutal and painful things I've ever seen on film. The bottle and the paring knife. Yeah, oh. uh, and we could even go earlier. We could go to Devil's Backbone. We could talk about the spike through the armpit, which is also incredibly brutal and realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I would cap this class with uh, 2019's Parasite, which we all love. We've all seen some of us multiple times. And uh, just there's some elements of that realistic violence on display there. And I always kind of work through that, talk about that, talk about how those different displays of violence uh, reflect different film languages or aesthetics and, and things of that nature, I think. Mm, nice. That's I like class. that class, yeah. So what are you going to do, Dalton? Well, look, uh, we've already talked about the t- compressed time frame, so I don't need to give you all my excuses for why I didn't build a, a great sociological course on colonialism, uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm lazy, and it's been a long holiday weekend. So instead, we're going to do a 2019 as a series uh, Arthur's done one of these as a syllabus early in our 2019 marathon, so I figured, well, that was a good time, because uh, I got my, uh, you know, my conspiracy theory string out, I got my cork board out, you know how I like to uh, turn every uh, year of cinema into an anthropological thesis on the world that was, and so here we have at the end of 2019, a lot of films about taking people's stuff, and a lot of films about male entitlement. So let's get into that, shall we? Yes. Uh, obviously, The Nightingale is a, a film awash a in these these themes and these issues. But I, I, Lieutenant Hawkins' entitlement, uh, as Arthur said, Sam Cafflin's performance never goes mustache twirly, and that's a, a tricky thing for any actor to pull off. Uh, boy, howdy! I, not a fun job for anybody on this uh, film. 
Uh, allegedly, uh, again, you can never be sure how much you want to trust IMDb trivia, but according to that, uh, they had clinical psychologists uh, on the set to, to help with uh, some of the more traumatic scenes. I can believe it, too. Many needed. I would absolutely think so. But again, all of these themes that are in the Nightingale, I, I've noticed in some other films from 2019. So I'm just going to run down some of these 2019 releases uh, that I've caught up with this holiday weekend. Um, some that I've watched earlier in the year. And I, I just want to kind of, let's say, all right, let's take uh, this film 101 class intro to film. Let's talk about 2019 because it's the last year anybody put movies in a theater probably. Uh, I'm going to be saying that about the next probably five years until we actually stop doing it. Well, next year will just be Disney. Well, yeah, until everybody started to go see Disney's at uh, at the Cineplex, at the local Mickey Mouse yep. Plex. Oh, God, you heard about the rule change? We haven't talked about that on the show yet. We can talk about that later. We'll get to it on another episode. Uh, first up, let's look at a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Let's just we'll start with the Nightingale. We'll get that out of out of the way. Say if you want to drop the class now, I can't say as I blame you. But if you stay, I'll give you a palate cleanser. And we'll do A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood by Marielle Heller, uh, starring Tom Hanks and uh, Jonathan Reese, uh, or Matthew Reese, sorry. Uh, great film. Uh, but I think the smart uh, film, uh, the smart choice this film makes um, will be vague because obviously it's a brand new release. Uh, but Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, is not the protagonist of this film, it's the uh, fictionalized. Uh, portrayal of this Esquire reporter who uh, wrote this piece for uh, on Mr. Rogers in the late '90s. Uh, a fictionalized version of that that real journalist is the protagonist here, and and it's all about a guy who is uh, you know got some very very serious issues with his father, and these have started to uh, boil over into uh, confrontations at weddings, and it's it's getting bad, uh, and it becomes about Mr. Rogers helping this dude deal with. Uh, these feelings uh, inside of him that are look, it's toxic masculinity. I was going to try not to use buzzwords, but screw it. I, economy totally of language is helpful. Uh, he's you know he's mad at his dad. He wants to fucking fist fight him. Like, that's relatable, and it's all about Mister Rogers trying to help this dude understand it's okay to be mad, dude. Like you can be mad at your dad and like still want to forgive him and have a relationship with him. It's fine. It'll be all right. Uh, and that was a nice film to watch. I wish I'd watched it after The Nightingale instead of before. But again, I think these are relevant messages. Next up, we got The Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, which is still one of my favorite films of the year. Seven, six months out from when Arthur and I got to catch it uh, at our uh, our art house theater in Oklahoma City. Just a great film. Uh, if you haven't caught up with it, you, you really need to do yourself a favor and get to it. I think it's streaming now. That's got to be true, right? I, I wouldn't know where. I know it's out on disc, so okay. I'm sure you can rent it. Yeah. yeah. There you go, listener. It's probably on digital on demand already. You don't even have to go to a, a store or anything. But there this is go. Joe Talbot's uh, feature debut, uh, and it is a great film about uh, about gentrification, but also, I mean, gentrification is just colonialism with less shooting. It really is, and sometimes with an equal amount of shooting. Uh, you know, this shit doesn't stop, listener. It goes on and on and on and on forever because we dress it up. Uh, and put on Thanksgiving pageants and, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to be confrontational with you. You're listening to this after Thanksgiving, so you care less. Uh, but here in the past, we're still thinking about Thanksgiving and the Nightingale at the same time. And uh, I think when we don't have an honesty with our history and with each other and our storytelling, uh, we just keep making the same mistakes all over again. So, yeah, go watch The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's really, really good and equally sad, uh, but much less painful to watch, uh, at least viscerally speaking. Uh, next up, we're going to pivot into some weird comedy, but it's also got some stylistic uh, similarities that I think will lend themselves to each other. We're going to watch The Art of Self-Defense, uh, which I've talked about a couple of times on the show this year, uh, but a, a really interesting film about uh, uh, 
fear of violence and what that looks like as a man. Uh, and again, I, I think the Nightingale is telling a, a more important in 2019 story, obviously. Uh, but uh, we don't have a lot of films about being a man and being afraid of being attacked. Uh, there's just not very many. Mm-hmm. There's a couple, but I think The Art of Self-Defense is maybe one of the best ones because it cops to how silly a premise that is, uh, which I think is good. And, and again, I just think we'll make for an interesting pairing, especially talking about 2019 as a year of cinema uh finally thinking about uh entitlement and what's mine and birthright and all of these dumb things let's talk about ryan johnson's knives out uh another thanksgiving release brought alongside a beautiful day in the neighborhood uh knives out is by far the outlier in this curriculum it is kind of the most tangentially related to the nightingale but again i gotta send this class out on a on an upswing uh, so let's let's have a film with clear-cut villains and heroes and, and clear moral roles. Uh, but at the same time, Knives Out, I think, is a film full of ambiguity, full of character depth, full of uh, likable people doing despicable things and despicable people doing likable things. Uh, it's a film that plays on uh, your expectations as a viewer of films. It plays on your expectations as a, somebody who's... if Anybody who's ever heard of a mystery story. Uh, and again, I just think a fun film and the ways in which it'll tie into uh, The Nightingale are nuanced in a way like, look, I'm, I'm going to have to really stretch my conspiracy yarn to make those films connect. But I think the places where they connect are especially interesting. Uh, so that, that's the curriculum. It's, it's just a, an overview of the, the year that was 2019. And look, it's me. So we're going to talk about masculinity. That's what I'm always looking at when I look at movies. It's hard not to uh, with the brain that I got. Uh, but I also find that we don't talk enough about imperialism uh, and colonialism and the ties to the same cultural values that uh, give us masculinity and all of its uh, grossest permutations. And I think looking at those connections, it's it's good conversation. It's fruitful, if nothing else. Dustin, you've been talking about not letting anybody teach this film, huh? Yeah, okay, so if I were, I would, this is what I would do. I would do the most vanilla thing ever. Okay. Uh, So I would begin with the epigraph of the um, one sentence in Kiowa that I can still speak. Okay. Which is, which is, you know, good, dirty white man, which would be the name of this particular section. And I would just talk about colonialism. Yeah. And I would use this film next to the standard colonialist text, uh, the first two chapters of Edvard Said's Orientalism, uh, next to Giartri uh, Spivak's um, Can the Subaltern Speak? And, yeah. uh, and then just from there, this film would be that kind of conversation, especially the rape scene of the Aboriginal woman. Yeah. I think it would be very, very crucial for that conversation. But, yeah, I would not teach this movie. Yeah, I would never teach this movie. I don't know that you would. I just don't. Yeah, I, look, we're talking in hypotheticals, but now that you brought that up, I don't. I can't see. It. No, I can't. I, I I would absolutely refuse to you, teach this. Who movie. would you show this to other than film grad students? Like, but there's no, just no, say you know doctoral what? students. Yeah, exactly. No, you know what? I know I wouldn't even there because I don't know those students. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it, it 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 it's an unfair task to sort of force upon them the viewing of this film. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, to this, require this as something on a syllabus would yeah, be yeah. a bridge I, too far. I, I I think I think it's uh, it would be a soft form of abuse. Yeah. And so I mean, you know, I like this movie very much. I think it's very very yeah. good. But that being said, no, I would not teach it. You know what? I I like that we've ended there though, Dustin, because I think that's uh, we're talking about films uh, that depict 
you know, like really upsetting imagery, uh, mm-hmm. whatever it is, regardless of like the, the specifics of the content, I, forcing anybody to watch a film that could be like emotionally troubling. It's an ethical conversation. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you've got to push students and they, they've got to watch some violence and, and they've got to watch some depictions of rape. I mean, I'm, I'm okay sure. with but that. But it's image. reasonable to have a line. And if there is a line, the Nightingale is probably it. it. For, for my money right it. now, yeah. it, well, it's, over, it. it's over that particular uh, institutional line. Yeah, I think teaching. that's reasonable, man. I do. So, I don't think you're uh, you're doing any pearl clutching by saying that. No, I really don't. No, no I'm, yeah, I hope not. No, so. I don't think so. I think it's a reasonable like uh, caveat. Sure. But it, it, would it be a good example of colonialism? Yes. Hell would, yeah. it be, would, would it be a good example of giving the subaltern no voice? Yes. I mean, all of those things totally work. Uh, the way in which it uses languages, I think, particularly speaks to Spivak. But there are other examples that are, uh, again, I'm. Uh, you do True Grit and get a lot of the same. You do The Searchers and get a lot of the, yeah. You, there, there, are, there are kinder ways to do this exactly. to, a, to a, a group of students. And I, I, I could not be this cruel. Yes, do you mean? That's, yeah, right, that's yeah, fair. Yeah. So there, that's, that's where I end up falling down. Not that you're cruel, Arthur, for doing this. I'm not judging you. Um, I'm judging you a little. Um, it's okay. I, I'm mostly not judging you. But uh, this does bring us to a place where we need to get down to business. It's business. It's business. That's right, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. So do we want to start with the biggie on the eye chart, or do we want to start further down? I don't There's care. a lot of biggies. Let's just talk about revenge <laughs> Multiple. movies. Multiple. Let's kind of like... Okay, revenge. Okay, look at me. Listen, just listen. Feel me, The boys. Western is revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sit in this groove with me. Let's so. feel good for a second. Let's, yeah, let's talk about revenge. Uh, I think what you, one of the things you brought up earlier was this isn't exploitative. Why don't you parse out some of that? What, you know, what's an exploitative version of this? And, and kind of compare and contrast here. Uh, an exploitative version of this is Last House on the Left. Yeah, I spit oh, on your grave. I spit on your grave, yes. Uh, the ways in which uh, Revenge, actually, the Belgian film from last year uh, that we talked quite a bit about in, on the show, in which uh, it makes it really sexy, it's really entertaining, it's mm-hmm. really sort of palatable. I mean, the, the, the way... Well, and it's it, acting in the mode of, of those old rape revenge films. Yeah, yeah. And the way in which, I mean... It, it, Deliberately it, so. To, but that's to, a different thing, right? To use an alcohol reference. Mm-hmm. It's, it drinks real smooth, even though it's trying to kill you the whole time. Gotcha. And uh, this movie is absolutely trying to kill you in the same way those movies are. This is just the kerosene from the lighthouse. Yeah, but yeah just, you, well, you want to keep with the alcohol metaphor. But it's going to make you suffer the whole time. Yeah, it's it's that hooch that uh, that Joaquin Phoenix makes in The Master. It's just coconut milk and, and engine grease. Yeah, yeah. And so it like the way in which it is unpleasant. It there's a way in which cinema is at as at it, in some ways it's most moral and and so when I was talking earlier about like not wanting to show the movie for moral reasons, it's not that I find the film itself to be immoral in its depictions. No, yeah, I think I I didn't think you were saying it, that it, because it is it's really very moral. I would say so, yeah, yeah, because it is awful, horrible, terrible, and the way in which uh, the film sort of moves your subjectivity to the place of Claire and of Billy, that you feel their suffering and their powerlessness in the face of the sort of institutional forces they kind of struggle against. That That's, that's super powerful and a, a super, super moral thing to do in terms of filmmaking. Well, you know, I, I referenced True Grit earlier, and I was thinking of the, yeah. the Coen's version, but you yeah. could use either. Uh, but, you know, the, the revenge against Labeef in that film, uh, or Labeef's the Matt Damon slash uh, yeah. 
I forget who plays him in the original. Uh, who cares? The, the the villain that they're going after. I can't think of the character's name. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin in the in the Coen Brothers version. Yeah, you know the revenge against him is, you know there there is a melancholy to the the main the the receiving of revenge. Right, like there there is a cost to revenge in that film. But it's still, you know, it's kind of a happy ending. It's yeah. a happy adjacent. Because you yeah. got the sucker. You got the sucker, and maybe you lost an arm, but you went on and had, like, a cool life, and, you know, you were an interesting person. This this film, the first time Claire gets revenge, it's against a, a character, the, the ensign, who, you know... Who killed her who baby. Who killed her baby. And yet, and yet, the film doesn't let you off that easily. Yeah. It takes the person who did probably one of the more morally repugnant things that you see in the film. And his last words. And he's the only character who feels even a little bit bad about what happened. He's the only character who's very clearly thinking about killing himself. Yeah, like thinking about turning on his. He's the only one carrying any kind of guilt. And yeah, and and that's the person she gets her real up close and personal revenge with. Uh, And it sucks and she hates it and it's awful. And Billy doesn't even like seeing it. Uh, obviously, Billy has no idea why she wants revenge at that point in the film. But I think she's he a does mad go lady. on to say, though, if I found the I would have done the same. Thing. I would have done exactly. the same thing. But he's at first a gat. Like it takes him a. It takes him back. Like even the the yeah. one friend in the world she has at that moment can't look at her. Well, he thinks there's like hunting this girl's husband down. Like, yeah, she has no idea. Knows up to. Yeah, taken situation exactly. But again, I think the choice to have. It's for Jennifer Kent's, uh, again, she's she's the sole credited screenwriter here. For that character's last words to be mother are mm-hmm. a choice. They're a big damn choice. Uh, and I think it speaks volumes. As you said, this is a moral film, and I think it speaks volumes to the film's morality. There is no clean revenge. It just doesn't work that way. You might find one evil person in the world, uh, and sure, that person probably decide, deserves to die or be put in a concrete box and left alone. But the person that they've con- the people they that person's convinced to work alongside them probably don't. It brings us back to there you know, are uh, folk- Charles Manson, who we've referenced already, right? To quote my grandmother, uh huh, as one does in a question of moral questioning like this, uh, always helpful for some folksy wisdom. There are folk who need killing, uh huh. And uh, that being said, though, wait, not- is that the end of your grandma's quote? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> some folk need Check killing. Oh, what a lady. Um. But that being said, if you go down that road and get there, it's you know there's 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 a there's a cost, yeah, and yeah. I mean I and I think that's a good thing, uh, and for film to depict that, and again so, sometimes films depict that in I mean I'm, again I'm looking at Last House on the Left, yeah. in which it's it's, it's sure. weirdly yeah, satisfying, Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, right? Or I, Death I Proof with Quentin, Quentin Tarantino, to Logan. Get back to- I think about the Great American Text, Batman Forever. Where, oh yeah, uh, Batman and Dick Grayson have this conversation. He's like, you can, yeah. you can go after him, but then you're only up to the next one and the next one, and there's no breaking that cycle. Well, truly, I mean, the best Batman film anyone ever made. When you think about it, hmm. Uh, I'm not going to come. I'll fucking stand on that grave. But I, I will say this: I don't know that you necessarily have to go down a road of vigilante killing afterward. But there's don't there, you, don't you? No. What other choice do you have, Frank Castle? There, you know there, the sequel is this is just her and Billy traipsing the uh, Tasmanian wilderness, and killing think, every white man inside. I think Billy's dead. The revisionist we'll western. That. Billy's totally dead. Yeah, we'll get to that. The, but the revisionist western is like her Django Unchained, and yeah, they sure. just kill all the you know white but, people. All the English. I mean, this is the conversation we're having though, right? Like, it's at a certain point, it's hard not to want it to go there. You want that catharsis, and you you just want. Good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people. and But I like how it takes it from you. And you can't have that because that's not how the real world works. And Nightingale takes place in the real world. Yes. That's straight up. That's what this movie is. There's there's no 
good outcome if you want to murder somebody. There to seek isn't. after revenge is for me to pick up a hot coal to throw at you, and we just both get burned. Yeah, well, it was the, I'm not going to pretend to be a scholar of Confucius, but is it, if you want revenge, that, dig two graves. That's the Buddha. Is it the Buddha that said that? Okay, yeah. thank you. I needed help on that one. It's a yeah. hard sutra. It's a fuck. It's a good. It's a good line. There's just a reason it's you know become an aphorism. Or me drinking poison and hoping you die. Yeah. Or what? You know that's sort of the more American. There's lots version. of good aphorisms yeah. about revenge. Uh, so I, let's we talked about Billy already. Do we feel uh, that I, I got I get upset about where Billy ends up because I'm with you, Arthur. He's maybe one of my favorite characters. I'm not of the upset year. because it's true. It is Billy true. Billy dies and Claire lives because, I mean, I think... That's the it, world we live in. And, yeah. and, the, and the question and the discussion of liberation, and this is a thing that uh, feminists, you know, um, the fourth wave or third and a half wave of feminism that we happen to find ourselves in right now is wrestling with. Or fifth, depending on who you ask. Oh, We've had this conversation on the show before. Damn, no. It's not important. Keep going. I, I disagree. Um, anyway, uh, but I, I understand an argument for a fifth. But the conversation is that liberation is uh, what... Um, intersectional mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on there and the the journey towards liberation for a white woman in australia is nonetheless despite all of its massive oppressions and the film does a great job of depicting those massive oppressions and you know her irish status her convict status and all of those things but her white woman status Gives her a status that is different than Billy's. Well, let's bring it home on our own front door, right? Uh, white women got the vote, the right to vote in the United States before the indigenous people of this country. Mm-hmm. Straight up. I mean, that's you're right. That's a very good point. It is historically accurate that right. that is what ha- would happen. It, it just, you know, look, you can go to hi- historicity all you want, but at a certain point, you're the one making the movie, and as it stands, the movie ends with uh, an indigenous person like uh, being part of a white woman's story, and and it's, I, I just want to complicate. It's true. it's true. I just want to complicate it because, as Arthur's pointed out, I, I, and I'm with him, Billy's one of my favorite characters of the year. Like, it's such a good performance. It's such an interesting character, and it just makes me. And you're right, Dustin. Look, it's a sad film full of sad things uh, because they're historically accurate. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's not a a world. In eighteen twenty whatever Tasmania, where those two get away together, there right. just isn't. It doesn't exist. And, and Jennifer Kent gets away with doing this because yeah. she's a white woman. She can do it, and so she is saying the question: "Hey, white ladies, yes, fight for your freedom, of course, fight for your liberation, but also recognize that you're not the most dispossessed. You're not the most disenfranchised of the humans." I didn't pick that up from the end of the film, but again, I watched it like an hour ago, so I'm glad I. I, I if I ever do get around to watching it again, I will be thinking about maybe that is Jennifer Kent's intent. Because I, that I, would be very I cool. I do feel like Billy is intentionally depicted as much more disenfranchised. Oh, he, well, he is. He yeah. lists all the people that the English have killed that right. are close to him. He, finds he out, lost her family. He lost his entire people. Yeah. And he finds out by the end of the film, yeah, that like his it's entire... One of the most brutal scenes. Oh, fuck that scene. And he also seeks revenge and violently achieves it in the same way that she does. And she is, she is able to get away with it. Yeah. And he's not. Okay, fair point. Point well made. So yeah, Arthur, you, do, do you just uh, do you think he he survives the end of the film, or you were just daydreaming there for a moment? Daydreaming, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. only. Well, I mean, and I, I don't know. I mean, where does she go? Right? I mean, that's the other. Uh, yeah, I think your armchair booking this, but yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I don't think she it, can survive in the bush. I don't. Well, and our Aboriginal rape victim oh, dies. God, yeah. Well, and that was oh boy, oh that's. 
That, you know, I, I talked about this off air, uh, and I'll reference it really quick. Uh, Angelica J. Bastian, uh, I, I learned about this article on uh, film spotting. Uh, I was doing some, you know, quick homework uh, on the episode, and uh, they referenced uh, an article that she wrote uh, about this film specifically, but it, generally about depictions of sexual violence on film. And uh, I, I haven't had, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read the article, but listener, I, I would, you know, go check it out because it sounded very interesting. And again, it's just, this is what happens when we record on the holidays. But uh, the central thesis, I guess, uh, as I understood it, that was posed was like, you know, after the third, you know, instance of rape in one film, if you're not doing a whole lot else, what are you showing us? And Dustin, I think, as you've talked about Billy's fate being the only historically reasonable one, I mean, it is important to show, uh, you know, the, the rape of indigenous people in this film because right. it's it, it's so much worse. It's just it's just worse. Like as bad as it is to be. A woman in a uh, colonial landscape, uh, that, that the, the whiteness will, will buy it, buy it freedom. What little power they have, yeah. it is substantially more than some others. But I think, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a check your privilege sort of message working in this. You know, again, which yeah. is the, the, the thing I have no business talking about. Oh, yeah. Right. But I, this, I, this episode, much like many episodes uh, of this in this podcast history, should just be subtitled. The, the, the one where they talk about the things they definitely are, should not be but, talking about. But I think it's what Jennifer Kent is saying, though. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's – if anybody's allowed to say it's Jennifer Kent, right? right. I mean, as, as a, a white woman from that particular corner of the colonized world. And like, she's like, yeah, hey, white, middle-class feminists, by the way – We should be thinking about this. We yeah. should be, well, You have to think about what little power you have and want more power, sure. But you should be thinking about people who have even less power than we do. I think a fun pivot point while we're here – fun being a weird word uh, – an interesting pivot point while we're here talking about colonialism is – the the really sad fate of uh, Claire and all Irish convicts who ended up in this part of yeah. the world, or uh, the, all of the you know the the Irish diaspora, if you can call it such a thing, the non-white whites, yeah, the non well, yeah, exactly, are my dumb people. If I, if I want to claim anybody, uh, there there are people that get colonized by the British and then used to help colonize other places. It's a a truly depressing uh cycle of history and it speaks to uh, like the invention of racism uh as like a, a really truly effective tool of, of empire right because romans didn't have such a thing as chattel slavery they just they didn't care what color you were they just cared that you were a conquered people or a, or a prisoner uh and pivoting towards racial slavery uh you know around the 1600s or so uh, 1500s, I guess, actually. 15 to the 60s. Yeah, but, yeah, but really it, institutionalized by the 17th century, so 1600s. And I don't, I don't know if this has been talked about on this show before, but you know, listener, this is a fun hi- historical nugget for you. One of the first slave rebellions uh, in what would be the United States was, that's right, racially egalitarian, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, white indentured servants and uh, black chattel slaves rose up and killed their masters. Uh, but that was the moment where uh, the uh, colonial leadership in America at the time said, okay, no more uh, indentured servants. Yeah, because, we can't be having that white slavery. But that's the thing, right? Claire and Billy have this moment around the fire where they talk about the, the their sh- people's shared history of oppression under the English. And I think it's, it's really interesting. And again, it's just kind of an addendum to what you've already talked about, uh, speaking about, you know, uh, when feminism is not intersectional and is just a different kind of white supremacy. Uh, this is a different thing, right? And it's not something that gets talked about a lot. And uh, look, I'm a big dumb sap, and I cried a lot during this movie, yeah. obviously. But 
there's something about an Irish lady singing in her native tongue that is like, it's it's just yeah, it like rips me in half. And like, you know, it's not a culture that I have any real connection to, other than you know, dumb potato farmers that I come from in this part of the country. You know, but it, it makes you sad to think about the things that your people have to have been through, and uh, that little sliver of that that I experience uh, makes me not even be able to fathom watching this movie as a, an Aboriginal Tasmanian or Aboriginal yeah. Australian. Like yeah. I can't even, yeah. I can't even fuck. Like the the, the the performance of Billy is so good, and I, I think the the weight of historical pain that that actor, you know, has to deal with just being alive in this world that definitely probably contributed to his performance. I can't imagine it didn't because yeah. it's, it's so real and powerful. It's so there, yeah. Yeah. That's, again, that's, that's all I had to say about the, that, that Irish uh, conversation that happens. Uh, I just thought it was interesting and not, not a conversation that happens in film that often. So um, I guess we'll move on. Uh, again, content warning, content warning, content warning. Um, the last sort of major thing that I've got in my mind is the ethics of depiction, representation. I think we've kind of gotten there uh, a yeah. little bit. We we talked about revenge right up top, and I think that kind of got yeah. us there. Well, I'm just thinking about the rape scenes themselves. Yeah, I knew what you were talking about. And I, I mean, I would obviously do not want to clinically diagnose them and work my way through them. And but... again, that's why I name checked this Angelica J. Bastian article because it's probably going to yeah. do a better job than we can here. But yeah, I mean, as they go, this is not salacious, not uh, exploitative. Yeah. Uh, the lack of nudity uh, in all but one of them helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the very briefness and uh, of partiality, partiality, yeah, partiality and briefness helps, and, he, and it helps Kent like keep the gaze non-sexualized. Yes, but uh, you know, speaking of gazes, though, using Claire's gaze at uh, the middle distance, uh, you know, uh, in some of these scenes is yeah. really effective. It's a good call. It's a good call, and it's really effective, and it makes you think about words like male gaze and female gaze a, a lot. Uh, but again i you know it's it's not a conversation that i frankly feel like we're equipped to have no no but i just wanted to mention it yeah uh, thank you i mean I, i'm glad you did uh i don't have anything arthur i don't yeah right. uh, other major things to discuss i know we're going kind of light here but hey, look it's a it's a pressing film i guess maybe we'll we should talk about one timers again we kind of joked around about that earlier but again one of our earliest episodes in the in the catalog is when we talked about compliance and we did kind of a whole section on that episode about you know rough watches or one time watches uh nightingale is our new personal bar i think around this table but yeah. i guess maybe we can talk about what's what is the value of a film like this we've spent a lot of time talking about how hard to watch the nightingale is right and we've kind of just now talked about the historical importance of 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 these kinds of stories uh, historical stories that pull no punches and and their weight uh, you know, let's, I guess let's, you know, not outside of the Nightingale specifically, maybe we can just kind of talk generally. What's the value of a film that's this hard? I to will watch? tell you about the Nightingale specifically. Okay. The reason why this movie is important and why what it's doing, despite all this troubling nature matters is because of movies like bloody Quigley down under mm. in which Tom Selleck solves racism mm. by killing Franz Gruber. Um, uh, 
if you're, I, you know, I'm familiar with Quibi. Yeah. I've never oh, seen it, but I'm yeah. aware of it. Yeah. Okay, so I yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's a great. Alan Rickman plays the yeah. big bad, who's an English baddie, who's super, super racist, and you know, this American guy swaggers in with his very, very accurate long distance rifle and is able to, you know, it's one of those little Western tropes in which the technology sort of runs part of the show there, and. It, it's a story in which there is racism and there's sexism and there's colonialism and all that stuff, but the one good man out there sort of overcomes all of that. And this film helps us to see the truth of that moment, but also to help us see the truth of our own moment. And I, and I, and I think that's why it's really valuable, it is because the way in which you sort of could talk about and romanticize the West in the United States or the West or the sort of colonialization a colonialization of Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, etc. And look at those stories and go, yeah, there was a lot of bad stuff happened, but there were good people there. And we have this moment where there's a there's one family who are pretty okay. Yeah. But also they're okay insofar as like they recognize but they're not actually doing anything about it. And they leave them in their awful morass. They're yeah. they're okay the, the way the rest of us are okay when we give somebody twenty bucks, right? Yeah. Like they're they're doing the barest minimum yeah just like we all are like, like well they're doing enough to assuage their own consciences uh, yeah he is anyway his yeah, wife yeah. Seems, uh, seems a little un- less inclined un- uncertain about it yeah. it it's a sweet moment of tenderness but you're right that's the most tenderness that exists in this world sometimes. and 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 i think that moment is quickly down under oh, okay Where, like you've got the one guy and the one time and I've, i'm because i'm very you know um able and capable in the efficient distribution of violence like Tom Selleck's character is and quickly. Mm. So therefore I will rise up and do it. This guy is an old guy. So he's not, there's not as much ability that he's got there, but you know, each according to his ability gives to each according to their needs. So it's like semi like Marxist, but it's really not because it keeps trumping up the same idea of the ideology of the state, the idolatry of the state, quite frankly, I misspoke there, but I'm going to stick with it. The idolatry of the state as we're getting better and it's going to be fine and it's not fine and it's not okay. And those movies still exist. And so this movie as a branding iron, this movie as a hot French fry in the eye um, to that history of cinema, I think is important and valuable. So I, I think, yes, useful. And uh, in terms of the conversation, the way in which we romanticize these stories and, you know, the one guy who's like, oh, you know what? I have all the respect for the Shoshone. I have all the respect for the Cheyenne. I have all the, and I speak, you know, this and that. And so therefore I'm the one cool white guy. And, there's a way in which we say, oh, yeah, the West was full of the one cool white guys. They really weren't. No. They're, they're, were there cool white guys? Sure. Maybe. A couple probably. Were there, I mean, were there, were there woke folk before 2015? You know, sure. Yeah. I, they, I had, they had abolitionists in 1776. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe that. A lot of them cashed their chips in for uh, cushy government jobs uh, once they realized that the thing they actually wanted wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and again, and the people who can be activists, great. I'm all for that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were, I mean, those people did exist, but we are talking about a bare minority in the conversation. Sure. And by choosing to make films that emphasize these minority voices amongst the majority is a way to minimize the voices of the minority. And what Jennifer Kent is doing here is reemphasizing those minority voices in a way that's pretty powerful. 
Yeah. Uh, I think the only thing that I, I have to add that is uh, just kind of being more general about like the ideas of, of violence. You know, again, we're talking about when when violence gets to be fun and ex- and or exploitative. It, we we have a lot of stories in, in Western myth making that are all about like good folk uh, being given their moment of of violence, right? Like, oh well, this this was just a nice wholesome. Uh, man until his family was killed by the mob. And I don't know why I'm bringing up Frank Castle again, but let's go ahead and go with that, right? Sure, why not? Well, he sits at a good nexus of Western and superhero that I think is helpful uh, in terms of Western myth-making. And again, you know, superheroes as modern Greek gods or whatever. Uh, You know, all of these stories about the the good guy waiting for Luke Skywalker, whoever it is, uh, waiting for their moment where they get to distribute just violence, right? As you talked about, the the, the Quigley. and more outside of these ideas of imperialism, just the idea that violence solves anything. It doesn't. Even if you kill all the bad guys, are you going to kill all the bad guys' kids? Are you going to take it that step? Because if you're not, then there's just... Now you have an entire generation that is justifiably the good guys because you killed their parents. Like, you've just created another cycle of violence and another yeah, right. story. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's the value of a film that's as unflinching uh, as The Nightingale is just because it makes us not only think about who's marginalized and who has power, as you said, Dustin, but also because it reminds us that even if you have the means to use power, uh, use to use violence against the the powerful, yeah, what's that going to solve? Right? Is that just going to cause more harm than good? Probably. Your option is to suffer in silence, and I think that's some shit. <laughs> no, well, that's not useful either. It's not. It's not. It, no, it is the way forward is much more fraught with difficulty and setbacks. I well, mean, yeah, it's, it's not... A, it's an easy narrative to say, just kill them all. Exactly. And The Nightingale reminds us that that's an easy narrative. And I, I think films that do that are few and far between. And uh, uh, You Were Never Really Here from last year is another mm-hmm. film that kind of comes close. And um, Yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful uh, in this holiday season uh, for films that challenge me like The Nightingale. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right then. Let's go render a verdict then. We're going to put this on the shelf or in the trash. And we all agree it's a very good movie. And none of us want to watch it again. So I'm very curious to hear your answers. Arthur Picker of the film and of your beard. Tell me, what do you think? Shelf or trash? Else? Oh, no, no, shelf or trash. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. I don't know. Do it's that been anymore. a while. Uh, yeah, a shelf. I, I do think it's shelf. I mean,. Based purely on the craft alone, I would shelf this movie. I mean, there are some just gorgeous sequences and just some powerful use of film language. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a master class in a lot of ways. Uh, and on that alone, I would shelf it. But I, I think coupled with the content and the impact and the importance, I, I, I think it's undisputed uh, going on the shelf. All right. Thank you very much for that. What do you say, Dalton? Shelf for trash? Yeah, I mean... This is a good movie, more of that is an important movie. Um, I, it's a hard sit, and I think some of the most important films that have ever been made are hard sits. Uh, I'll probably never get around to come and see, uh, but I've seen The Nightingale, and that seems pretty close. So yeah, it's going on the shelf, but probably in like a, like a chest under a blanket or something, so nobody finds it on accident. It's forbidden like, knowledge. It's forbidden knowledge. You don't want yeah. the kids watching. It's it. on a thumb drive. Yeah. Uh, it's Okay, here's what it is. Me and my 12-year-old are going to sit down tomorrow. It's an external hard drive that's no. just got Columbus's journals, the Nightingale, and like, I don't know, uh, a bounty on uh, an oil company or something. And if you hack them, you'll get some Bitcoin. That's what's on the flash drive. <laughs> that's what's. That's what it is. And that's that's where this film lives. Did you say Columbus Diaries? 
Columbus's diaries. Not I should have said, oh, God, if only it was Columbus's diaries, that'd be wait, much wait, more charming. One but more thing. Just one more one thing, more. diary. I know, <laughs> I know why you put your wife in the meat grinder. <laughs> Columbo tried to close a diary entry is a very funny bit. Thank you, Arthur. <laughs> uh, Dustin, show for trash else. Not, never mind. Damn it, I did it too. Yeah, He's infected did. me. He's going on the shelf or going to trash, Pops? Shelf. Yeah. Every Thanksgiving. <laughs> This is the I, I'm actually scoot over I'm, planes, I'm, trains, I'm, and automobiles. I'm, I'm, this is the new one. I'm kind of not playing. I no. didn't think you were. I mean, it's, it's not about the same Native American story of the United States, and there are great film examples. And what I might choose for that, I'm not quite sure right now. I have to think about that a little bit longer for an American Native American experience film. But this is part of the double feature, mm-hmm. and it's not a terrible idea. It's not. Because, and you know, maybe not Thanksgiving Day. Maybe it's the Columbus Day feature. Hey, maybe you just pair it with Terrence Malick's uh, The New World, right? Well, you know, you probably want something from an indigenous not from filmmaker. Not white dude, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the fucking thing about colonization is it makes it hard for indigenous peoples to tell their own stories. Yeah. Disney's Pocahontas. Oh, fuck. Oh, boy. Avatar. Oh, no, boy. I'm kidding. All right. So, so, listener, well, if you have an idea for Dustin's uh, Thanksgiving double feature, you can email the show at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for all that long-form feedback. We'd love to know why we're wrong, why we're stupid, why we're good, sweet boys who should keep doing what we're doing. Whatever. Uh, it's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. You can find this episode of the show and all other, well, most other episodes of the show and most other episodes of the other podcasts produced by Good Trash Media over at goodtrashmedia.com that's where everything lives at finally if you want to be involved in social media we're at good underscore trash uh, there's a Facebook and an Instagram out there somewhere too but uh, look most of us are not using social media anymore uh, around this table uh, or at the very least we're minimizing so the world is dying and we refuse to be a part of it at good underscore trash if you, you look Arthur's doing a great job over there he's he's truly a gym uh, a, a man uh, many talents and in in many interests. So yeah, add good underscore trash. Finally, if you want to help us keep the lights on, that's patreon.com forward slash gtm. Um, subscribe, we'll rate, review, etc. Well, Dustin, next we're gonna continue a little experiment we started next year, isn't that or last year, isn't that right? That's Arthur? right. Uh, we are. Uh, we thought it'd be fun to look back at the highest grossing film of the year last year, which was of oh. course Avengers: Infinity War. Well. To absolutely no surprise to anyone, uh, we're going to be doing uh, the follow-up to that film as we look at 2019's uh, highest-grossing film, which is Avengers Endgame. So it'll definitely be a palate cleanser. Uh, we're going to be asking the big question that has been racking the Internet for the last two months, it feels like, or longer. Um, and uh, Papa Scorsese's probably going to come into, come into play. Uh, yeah, we've got Marty. Uh, Marty's going to be on the show next week, right? Yeah. We have that I booked. booked him. I booked okay, him. yeah, so Martin we'll Scorsese. we got 15 minutes. Martin Scorsese, 15 minutes next episode. He's going to so, tell us why the MCU's not cinema. Bringing out all those bring out the dead questions if you have uh, one. I really thought we were going to be talking about The Lion King uh, last year. Did you? I, 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 didn't, I wasn't sure it was going to be Endgame. I wasn't positive. But here we are. If uh, Rise of the Skywalker had come out, Three months earlier, we might be we might be doing it. Mm, yeah, that's a good chance. But uh, we're not. We're, we're not doing another Avengers movie because they don't stop making them and they don't stop making money. Uh, listener, this may be uh, the last time we ever talk about a uh, Marvel movie on the podcast. It might please, be the last episode of the please, podcast. Who knows? Please. You know what? Uh, if we do continue this bit where we look at the highest grossing film of 2019 or of the year, I, I doubt it'll be the last time we we look at a Marvel film. 
Yeah, we might have to like uh, amend them. the rule. We'll have to yeah. addend, addend, amend the rules next year, uh, depending on uh, box office grosses. So, uh, Dustin, why don't you take us on home, buddy? Hey, y'all, keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.